We're operating in a worldview and a theology. We're like, no, no, no. Your relationship with your matters. Your relationship with your soul matters. There's this place as an artist where everyone else is running for cover from the rain. You want to climb the church steeple and you want to get struck by lightning. At the end of the day, you don't get a medal for being in pain and not taking anything. All you do is hurt everyone around you. John kind of thinks for a moment and he goes, This is the thing that I would want every young man to know. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in. We've got a pretty exciting episode for you this week. Um, Blaine and I were able to sit down with Craig DiMartino, a fairly accomplished rock climber. And I I use fairly um, with a little bit of humor because this guy actually has Olympic medals. Is that right, Blaine? Two of them. Yeah. So he, you know, fairly is uh, in air quotes. Um, He's got a really interesting story. Uh, This guy took a fall about 15 years ago about 100 feet, and as a result of that, ended up amputating one of his legs. And so he's an adaptive climber, went back to the world of climbing after the fall. Um, and we got to sit down with him and have some you know, conversation around kind of what that journey was like and pain and, and all sorts of things. Yeah. He has some great thoughts on success, some really great thoughts on living with pain and living with others. And what we were really interested in this conversation is the degree to which Craig has carried out his struggle and carried out his achievement in a physical way that very few people match, obviously. Going to this interview, I want to give you this quote to kind of situate what follows. It's from Wendell Berry, and it goes like this. The question of human limits, of the proper definition and place of human beings within the order of creation, finally rests upon our attitude towards our biological existence, the life of the body in this world. What value and respect do we give to our bodies? What uses do we have for them? What relation do we see, if any, between body and mind or body and soul? I think you're going to see those tensions carried out in a really cool way in this interview. Hope you enjoy it. Craig, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, you guys. I appreciate it. You recently got out of the hospital. How are you feeling? (laughs) Yeah, uh, it's it's been so strange. Like, so I've obviously gotten hurt before in the past, whatever. and this was the strangest thing. I fell in a shower in San Diego and split my stump open and then didn't get stitches. And, you know, cause I hit a shower floor. It was super dirty and gnarly and I got infected and I went home. They treated the infection, went home. Long story short, it ended up getting worse. And then they had to put me in the hospital and now I'm working. I'm still on crutches, which is ridiculous. Um, and so I've been on crutches since basically September, which is a drag. So um, kind oh, of a stretch. I feel like I think I hope I go in tomorrow again to see them and find out if everything is working the way they want it to work. So it's just taken. It's just so stupid. It was a like a silly, <laughs> stupid thing that is just kind of throwing a monkey wrench in my plans. So. Compared to some of your more dramatic falls, slipping in the shower sure. is like kind of a bummer of a story. But exactly. It's such a letdown. And even the one doctor asked me that. She's like, "I heard you were a climber." Like. What happened? How'd you get cut? And I was like, yeah, it's not that exciting. It's kind of a letdown. You're right. So, yeah. Do you have a typical uh, like fall schedule that this is kind of like getting in the way of that you'd normally be doing certain stuff? Yeah. Well, typically we'd be climbing outside a bunch. And um, my wife and I were in Vegas right when, right after it happened. I kind of like was ignoring it and thinking, oh, it's going to go away. It'll be fine. And we're in the midst of one of the best windows of weather I think we've ever had in the fall, of course. And so I'm classic. Yeah, I'm going to the climbing gym and climbing one legged there. And that's the the limit of my excitement right now. So I'm hoping I'm hoping this window stays for a while yet. 
Totally. Definitely. It's been fantastic. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you just hinted at it, but I think I do. You've told the story a lot. Um, I think I'd love for our listeners to hear a little bit of, of your story. And I mean, you've, you kind of hinted at stump and one legged. And I, and I think that we'd love to hear that story a little bit firsthand. For sure. Um, I've been climbing about 30 years and, uh, back in 2002, I was climbing with a really good friend of mine up in Rocky Mountain National Park um, in Colorado, where I live. And we were just kind of that particular summer, we were kind of going through the park and picking off routes. We would go up like one day a week on the weekend. And um, we picked this one climb. We went up there and we were going to do this route. And uh, just as we were walking up, kind of had this really small miscommunication about like what we were going to do. And he was a longtime climber. I was a longtime climber. So our belay commands were kind of lax, you know, kind of just said what, whatever. And it, it all worked fine. Um, and so what we, when we walked up, he was like, let's go up and top rope this thing. You lead it and then we'll top rope it. And it never occurred to me to say to him, you know, what does top rope mean to you? Cause it's such a basic command for climbing. It's, it's yes. not something I would give a second thought to. And so I tied into the route, um, led up this, the, the pitch, we were only going to do the first pitch, which is a hundred feet. It's, uh, it's called white man. And it's this really neat, like, kind of discontinuous crack system, um, that kind of leads up to this really small ledge that's a hundred feet up in the air. And so I tied in, led the pitch. It took me, I don't know, 15 minutes to get up there. It's kind of a weird, um, like that gear is kind of tricky. So you have to kind of play around a little bit to get what you want. And then, um, got up to the anchor with no problems and everything was fine. Clipped into the anchor and, um, yelled down that I was off belay and he took me off belay, which is totally normal. But, the route's pretty steep, so I couldn't see him. Um, we were just kind of going by what we, we could hear each other say. And so I clipped in to the anchor, looked at the anchor to make sure that it was all running smoothly. I equalized everything. And then once I felt like it was ready to be lowered, because in my head I was thinking, okay, we're going to top rope this. So he'll lower me to the ground, and then I'll belay him from the ground. He'll clean the gear. And then we were going to run laps on it. We had talked about that too. So I just figured, well, oh, that's what we're going to do. So once I thought everything looked good, I yelled down to him that I was all ready and all good. And he yelled up, okay, you're all good, because he thought I had him on belay and I was going to bring him up to the anchor. And our rope was the length that we had. I probably only had a little bit of slack out to him at that point, but he hadn't tied into the other end. Um, again, small miscommunication there. And so he yelled, okay, you're good. And I reached over and held the rope, pulled, kind of gave it a tug, you know, um, and as you guys know, the, the rope's the heaviest thing that we all carry. So it felt heavy to me. It felt like, oh, okay, he's got me. I felt some pull. And so I leaned into the anchor, unclipped everything and sat back and I just started falling. And as soon as I started falling, I thought, oh, he must have like a loop of slack out or something, you know, because that's happened in the past as well. And so then I kind of kept falling and I thought, oh, maybe he has, you know, maybe he fell. That happened to a, a buddy of mine once. He fell and got drug across the ground. And I thought, okay, that might be happening. And then I realized, okay, it's not any of that stuff and I'm falling now. And so I kind of, the, the reaction I had was to push away from the cliff really hard. And so I pushed as hard as I could just to, I wanted to see where I was going. And like I said, it was real steep. So as it, it was steep and then at the bottom, it kind of slabbed out a little bit. So I, I wanted to, in my head, I knew that in somewhere in the gray matter, um, so I kind of pushed that pushed me out so I could look and I could see the hillside beside me and I knew I was falling the whole way. And as I pushed, it also tipped me sideways. So I was kind of falling kind of horizontal to the ground, you know, and trucking down the the, the cliff and um, about 20 feet from the ground, there was a dead tree. And 
we had walked around the dead tree kind of to get to the route and I, I hit that tree and it stood me back up to standing. So I actually landed on my feet, um, which from a hundred feet, you know, it's a 10 story office building basically. So that's really the only way you can survive. So when you hit the ground, um, I see you, you're like rubbing your head, like, oh, like yeah. how, how <laughs> I <know. laughs> totally. And I, I do the same thing. Um, even when I tell the story, I'm like, gosh, you know, it just seems so unreal to me. Um, and even when I hit, like, I remember, I don't remember hitting the ground, but I do remember laying on the ground. The next thing I remember was, you know, I, I hit the tree. And the next thing I remember is I was looking up at the climb again and, uh, trying to sort out like what had just happened. And my friend Steve ran over and just kind of started to kind of do some first aid that he knew best. I had hit the ground and basically all the bones in my uh, ankles and heel kind of exploded out the sides of my legs. So I had compound fractures of both legs, severed the artery in my right leg. So I was bleeding really badly on the ground. Um, that shockwave kind of went up and broke my back at L2, which is kind of straight through your belly button and then snapped my neck at C5, C6, which is kind of through your Adam's apple here. And then broke my ribs on my right side and punctured the lung and tore up my shoulder, my elbow. Um, and then kind of crumpled me in the talus. And that's where he was kind of trying to help me to get more comfortable and sort out what had happened because he, again, he didn't know what happened either. He just, all of a sudden he looked up and here I was coming down the cliff and, you know, after talking and figuring out what, what happened, we, we understood it, but it was like at the time, just this amazing level of confusion. Cause now you're just trying to sort out, okay, we're, we're way in the back country, bleeding really badly, obviously got a lot of injuries. What are we going to do? And, and that's kind of where we found ourselves that day. Man, is every climber's worst nightmare. It is. It is. As time has passed, has, have you ever reached like a landing place with how you think about it? Or like simply thinking about a hundred foot fall, I feel like I would either have nightmares or every time I thought about it, it would just blow my mind. Um, has over, you know, it's almost 15 years ago now, I think. And in that time, is there any, has anything settled uh, for you when you think about the fall? I think what you end up doing, I don't know that everyone is like this. I think for me, what I've done is I've kind of, kind of not, kind of compartmentalized it and said, okay, this is something that happened to me that was really horrific. Um, and it was something that happened that I would never want or wish on anyone, but it did happen. And so what I'm going to do with it is I'm going to, I'm going to use it and, and let it be a catalyst to move me forward. And so I didn't want the, uh, I never looked at the accident and said, okay, that was, you know, crap. Well, I mean, I looked at it and said, that really sucked. That was crappy, but I never looked at it and said, okay, this is going to now destroy my life. It was kind of like, hmm. I'm going to look at it. It's, it happened. I can't change it I, as much as I would want to change it. I can't. And so I, I think you kind of get to this point where you just kind of say, okay, that is part of me now. And I'm going to, um, embrace that and use it, um, and try not to let it just be something that kind of chews on me, but something that actually helps propel me forward. That to me sounds like totally where you are now. And I'm super curious what, like, were there milestones in the recovery process, either like mentally and physically where you began to learn those things? Like, you know, month one, year one, year five, or were there certain milestones that you look back on and go, this is when I figured out blank. The biggest thing for me was the the whole, I think the whole first year, my wife and I were just kind of like navigating the the health stuff. Like, oh my gosh, this is broken. This is, we're going to fix this. We're going to do that. And she was my sounding board as far as, okay, what do you think about this? And she was great at being able to 
kind of take all that information in and give opinion back and, and help make these decisions. The, the biggest, I think, turning point for me to kind of get it under control, and this is going to sound really strange, but was me saying to the doctor, look, I want to go ahead and amputate my right leg because up until you know, 18 months after the accident, I still had both legs, but my right leg was still in a cast. It just didn't work really well. And, um, they were like, well, you're not going to be able to climb on it. Cause it's, I had two, uh, two plates and 11 screws just in the heel area. And then all this, they call it bone putty. They kind of mold your foot back together to kind of hold it together. And so I had all this junk in my foot and it just didn't work. Um, and so I was like, gosh, you know, I, I can't really do what I want to do. And the, my quality of life was such that it wasn't what I wanted it to be. So I was like, okay, I, if I amputate my foot, at least I, I would have a foot that worked um, and I could go and climb again. And so at that 18 month mark, I said, okay, I'm going to go back in and do that. I'm going to kind of take these big steps backward to maybe go really far forward. Um, and of course you don't know what that's going to do or what you're going to be like, but um, that was a huge kind of turning point for me to say, okay, I'm going to now kind of take control a little bit here and see see how this works. And I think once I did that, that kind of started me down the path I'm on now, which is being able to use this kind of new, what I call my new normal, um, what my body is like now and what it was like that it's always changing just like everybody. But like when you have that much trauma, you have to kind of do the damage control as you get older and, and as you age, it's just that part of it. And so I think that was the biggest turning point for me to kind of take control of the situation. Was there a slow development of that mindset in those first 18 months? Or are you kind of more uh, by disposition, just someone who's going to move forward and view things as like, I'm going to get back to it? Yeah, I think it was a combination of both. I think my disposition is such that, you know, I saw my friends and my wife going climbing and I thought, well, you know, I still want to do that. So I can't do that in the current state I'm in. And so what do I need to do to do that? And so that was kind of my overall feeling. But then also you get to this point where you're just sick of being hurt. You're just like, like even now, like with this stupid injury that I have now, it's like, you just get so tired of it. Like you just, it sounds silly, but it's just such a pain in the ass. You're just like, this is stupid. Like, come on, really? Like, I just need to move on now. And and so amputation, as as weird of a thing as it sounds, it's like, it was actually really empowering for me because it was me able to say, you know what, this is something I'm going to decide to do and I'm going to let the ramifications be whatever they are, but I'm going to make that choice. And up until that point, most of the choices were made to me either by a doctor or by the accident. You know, mm. you're, you're going to have this, you're going to have, you're not going to be able to do this. It was me just reacting to whatever they were saying. Whereas all of a sudden now I was able to say, you know what, this is, I'm going to do this as big a deal as this is like, you just never think you're going to cut a limb off. Um, Seriously. Right. Like you just never, I can honestly say in my time before that, I never even considered it. And I would even see, it was weird. I saw um, uh, probably a month before I amputated a guy an amp- uh, missing his leg and it freaked me out. You know, it just, you mm-hmm. look, I mean, I looked at people with missing limbs before this and I was like, Oh God, that's horrific. I can't imagine it. And you felt like this kind of sadness, like, Oh, bummer. And I get that now when people talk to me, but being on the other side of it, you're like, man, it's, it's empowering because you get to decide what it's going to look like and, and, and you get to move forward. After you had, you know, chosen to have your leg amputated and you were in the process of rehabilitation, it wasn't like you were just getting back to where you, you know, you had to relearn a functional <laughs> form of like body movement. 
How did you handle the uncertainty of that process? It's interesting. Like when you do the amputation, you know, you wake up and they tell you, okay, when you look down, it's going to be really freaky because your leg's gone. And that part didn't really freak me out. That I was like, okay, I was ready for that. What what they kind of leave out is like, hey, by the way, you have to learn to walk again. You have to learn like your new balance point because your leg now you're lighter on one side, so all your balance shifts. Um, and those are really kind of hard to learn. Like it was hard for me to figure out how to walk and figure out because my back is fused um, from L1 through L4, and then my neck is fused, so that kind of affects how you pivot and move as well. And so. Mm-hmm. I just had this kind of balance issue that I had to deal with right away. And then just like trying to get the pain under control. Once you amputate, they get it under control in the hospital. But then as soon as you put your prosthetic on, it's incredibly painful um, for like the first six months. And they don't tell you that part either. They just kind of brush that under the carpet and let you figure that out on your own. There's not much you can do about it. That's just the way it is. Um, But then once that's under control as well, you, you have these small incremental steps of, okay, I'm going to learn to walk and, I'm going to learn to balance and I'm going to learn now to put my leg on and I'm going to learn how to walk and with that leg on. And so you have to do these really small kind of baby steps to get to the point where you're able to tie into a rope again or or even just be active at all. It's just um, amputees historically are not that active. Um, it's a very small percentage. And so when you say to them, okay, I want to be a climber again, they're just like, oh God, what is that? Like, what the hell? So then you have to sort all that out too. So it's, it is very small incremental steps. I mean, is there, for most people, regardless of like the, the amputee aspect, I think probably wouldn't want to go back to climbing after an experience like that. <laughs> I mean, personally, I like that would be, I would be having flashbacks. I'd be afraid of getting triggered or, or something along those lines. Like there's something in you that was motivated to take control back of your words and move back into like watching your wife and your friends do this sport that you love. What was, what was the, the hope? What was the motivation there that was actually pulling you back in those directions? And that was just it. It was, the, it was the, it, the, the initial, probably the first year um, I would just be terrified and mm. just swear it off. Like I would come down off a climb and just be like, I'm never doing this again. This is stupid. You know, I don't need to be doing this. And so that process would go over and over, but then the same thing at the same time would happen where I would go. But I did like this one part where I was moving kind of up and I felt that weightlessness again, where you, you know, as a climber, you feel this every now and again, you get that feeling of everything just clicks together for you. And, um, that would happen too. And so I was kind of battling those two things. Like I really like that feeling, but I really hate being scared all the time. And so trying to get this, the, the fear under control was like, a, that was a long process um, of just being like, okay, some days I just couldn't climb. It just wouldn't happen because the, the triggers were kind of too many. Um, and they came in many forms. It wouldn't just be like being up high. It would be wind. It would be sun. It would be cloud. It would, it, I could never put my finger on it. It was always something like something is just tweaking me today. So I just need to not be climbing. And so hmm. those kind of incidents became less as I kind of moved down the, the road. But I think that me wanting that quality of life again, just being able to say, this is what I do and this is who I am. Um, I mean, up until that point, I'd climbed like, I think when I got hurt 14 years. And so you all of a sudden can't write that off and be like, well, that's, I'm just not going to do that anymore. It's just kind of part of who you are. And so even today when I get, you know, injured or whatever, it's still it's, it's a big part of who I am. So it's kind of like, I can't ignore that. I kind of want to just see what that looks like now. When you are injured, right? You know, you just got out of the hospital. 
what happens to your understanding of your identity when you're temporarily out of the game? That is the biggest hardest thing to deal with is, is you you realize like, okay, I'm this. So when I have my leg on, um, I wear shorts every day. I kind of don't even think about it. Like I forget that I'm missing my leg. I don't even think of myself as a quote unquote disabled climber. Um, you know, I go into the gym, I put my climbing leg on, I climb, I do my thing. If, I, if we're outside, I don't, you know, I'm just climbing. That's all I am. And I've always said, I just want to be a climber. I don't want to be an adaptive climber. I don't want to be a disabled climber. I'm just a climber. Um, when I'm injured like this, it really reminds me of that I'm disabled. As dumb as that sounds, it's like, oh yeah, crap, I'm disabled. Like, I just had this happen yesterday. My son uh, was sick, and so he asked me to stop and grab crackers for him at the store. So I crutch in there on my crutches, and I go to get the crackers off the shelf, and I knock down like four things of crackers, and I'm like, oh great, that's awesome. And so this woman comes up behind me, and she's like oh my gosh, let me help you. Because again, I have shorts on. So now I just have this kind of stump hanging down where my leg used to be. And I was like, oh no, you're fine. I'm fine. Don't worry about it. And then I realized, oh, she's helping me. She wants to help me because I'm disabled. And I was like, oh God, that's right. I'm disabled. And that's the actual process that goes through my head because I kind of forget it. And so you realize like, oh, this is my identity. Um, I kind of forget about it until things like this happen where I go, oh yeah, I'm reminded of that. Climbing one leg is so much harder than climbing with a prosthetic, it's like, oh God, it's such a freaking workout. I mean, it's a smackdown every time I go climbing now. It's just, I go out, I climb, you know, eight or 10 routes at the gym and I'm like, I got to go lay down. This is ridiculously hard. So it's a, it's an interesting reminder of, of kind of what my body actually is like. You've got two sons. Is that right? I have a son and a daughter. I have an 18 year old daughter and a 16 year old son. What, what role has, has this whole story played in the way that you fathered them and the messages that you want to, you want to tell your kids? Um, it's my son was actually hysterical the other night. He said, uh, it was right when I came home from the hospital, he goes, he said something about his arm, something was hurting on him. And then he looked at me and he goes, God, it's so hard to get any sympathy in this family for complaining. And I just started <laughs> laughing. I'm like, no, oh, that sucks, man. Like that's, it is what it is. But, um, I think it's been like an interesting you know, to them, they don't remember me being like an able-bodied person because they were too young. They were two and four when I got hurt. So um, I think if you ask them, they wouldn't know. And so I think our child rearing um, with me and Cindy has been probably the same as anybody. I think we're just like any other parent. We definitely more, you know, non-traditional because of what we do. I mean, we're both climbers. We both work, you know, we both do that all the time. And so they've grown up in that world and they're both climbers as well. So I think that you know, if anything, it's made me appreciate, um, you know, this is kind of sounds like the the answer you're supposed to give, but it's like, it makes you appreciate them being around and being around for them. I remember, you know, being in the hospital and thinking, okay, if I, even if I'm in a wheelchair, um, at least I'm here to hang out with them and, and watch them grow. Um, and I still think that, I think it's been interesting for them to watch me as an adult navigate this kind of weird, uh, world that they probably would have never even known existed. Um, cause most of the people we know who get hurt climbing are usually either killed or, um, or they're not hurt, which is really strange. There's not much in between. Um, mm-hmm. so we only know a few people who have been injured, like I've been injured. Um, so they've seen that and they've seen how we handle death and they see how we handle this stuff with the adaptive world. But I think that it's, uh, I think it's given them a little bit of empathy towards people who are like me, who are different, um, you know, whatever that looks like. I think it helps them. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of 
I always want to ask them, but then I'm thinking uh, that they probably look at me and just go, oh, whatever. As they're watching you, as you're just talking about, are there particular characteristics that you're hoping that they'll see? Gosh, I hope they see um, my attitude towards just kind of dealing with uh, not just trauma, but just stress, um, dealing with uh, pain, dealing with overcoming something that that is kind of seen as not... I guess almost not able to come back from um, because I never said I want to come back from this injury. It was it was never like that. It was always just this very slow process unveiling itself and me just kind of walking through doors as they presented. Um, but I hope they look at that and say, you know what, that's um, that's valuable. That's putting up, you know, looking at something and saying, you know what, this is what it is, and you have to deal with it. Um, I think that's more of what I've tried to impart on them is it doesn't always go the way you want it to go. And when it doesn't go that way, how do you handle it? So this is how I handle it. I handle it by just dealing with it day to day and and moving through it and not letting it define who I am. And I hope that's what they take away from it as well. Absolutely. You know, you just mentioned in your process of recovery, you didn't know I think if, you know, when you're in the hospital, no one would have looked at you and gone, that guy is going to be an Olympic medalist. Yeah. But so as those doors were opening and as you were walking through, um, how did you frame what was happening to keep you going when you didn't actually know how much better you were going to get, if that makes sense? Yeah, you. Um, it's the great unknown, you know? So you just kind of, I would deal with each opportunity on its own merit. So when somebody would, like, literally, I would be talking to someone and that person would say, oh, you should talk to so-and-so. And like, like going back to Yosemite for the first time, that was me reaching out to Hans Florian and saying, Hey, I want to know how to climb faster in a comp. What, how do you do that? Cause he was a fast climber and that opened a door after door after door. And so it was just me kind of saying, okay, this is a good opportunity. I'm going to step through and, and see where this goes. I didn't really have the idea that, Oh, I'm going to be able to come back to this level. I, I actually didn't have any clue. I think I was pretty clueless with that. Like if you would have said, yeah, you're going to climb 512 again, I would have laughed at you. Um, but mm-hmm. I think as those doors open and as those training things happen and as you meet the right people, you kind of just embrace those opportunities and say, oh, you know, that's cool. Like now I did this, you know, I did A to B. I wonder what B to C would be like. And so then that's kind of how that process happens and continues to happen, actually. Yeah. I mean, between your life as like these surprise medals, extremely accomplished climber in um, all these different events. And yet also the, the story of your recovery from the accident itself, like there's a lot of different parts of that that are success and would be measured as successful. Um, I'm curious what you would measure success or a successful life would look like to you, if you could put it into a few words. Uh, for me, it would be, gosh, it wouldn't be, yeah, it's like not the not the things I think that people see on the outside. I think that like the, the medals and things like that, that's kind of, you know, they hang in my office, which is kind of funny, like in a pile. And it's like, you never look at them. You just go, oh, those are those. And um, I think more that I think a successful life for me would just be like that good balance of, of being a dad, being a husband, um, being a climber, having those three things work very organically together. Um, I think that was, is to me a more successful thing. Um, cause I get just as much out of helping new athletes now. Like I'll go out and do adaptive clinics now. Um, you know, I still climb all the time and, and do my thing, but I think it's neat for, to be able to give back and help, um, other folks kind of navigate their own 
new trauma or new normal for them. Cause I, I get a lot of feedback from that. I, it helps me kind of remember where I came from. And I think I, that's a really valuable thing too. And so I think that all kind of plays in this, the, the success map, um, for me now. In many ways, um, the significant battles that you face are kind of the internal ones of, you know, how your body is feeling on a given day or, you know, what nerve damage is just sending pain signals through your body. How does that shape your experience and how has that affected the way that you interact with other people? It's, it's really interesting because like pain is this weird um, thing and I kind of forget about it a lot because like until I'm kind of thrust back into it. So like with this injury and this infection thing I've been dealing with, like there's been a ton of pain with it. Um, and you kind of forget that and you kind of forget like how that basically taints your entire day, um, or your entire interactions with other people, um, right down to my family where you realize like it's much harder to deal with stuff when you're in pain. And so it's much harder to deal with people. It's much harder to deal with circumstances. And so I think on those days where the pain level is kind of up there, you, you realize, okay, I need to just limit my exposure. Um, and I try to do that where if I'm really hurting, um, you know, on a particular day, I'll try to limit my exposure to what I would consider to be like an interaction. That's going to be a little bit tough for me to deal with. Um, I'm very open with people. I'm, I'm, I can get along with just about anybody, but when you're hurting, you kind of don't get along with anybody, if that makes sense. So oh, yeah. you want to kind of limit that because I don't want someone to be like, well, that guy was a total asshole. Um, but they don't know what's going on behind the scenes. You know, they don't know that you're in a lot of pain or, or they don't even care really realistically. So, and they shouldn't, it's, it's not their problem. So for me, it's like, if I have those days, which I do, um, I just try to limit my exposure and, and kind of navigate it that way. Um, so I kind of, avoid it when I have to. And then when I don't, you know, those are not the, the lion's share of my days. Most of my days are, I can deal with it and move on through. But, um, and that's when I kind of do my thing. But if I, if it's a bad day, it's a bad day. And I just try to lay back a little bit. I hear like tons of grace for yourself in that, of knowing that to push through it is actually going to do more damage to you and to your relationships if you were to pretend like it's not a real thing. Yeah. And I had a doctor early on say to me, um, so I have to take like pain meds, you know, throughout the day because of just all the heavy trauma I did. And he said to me, at the end of the day, if you don't take something, you know, he's like, you don't want to take narcotics, right? But you, they, they make these drugs that will help you feel, a little, take the edge off your pain. And he's like, at the end of the day, you don't get a medal for being in pain and not taking anything. All you do is hurt everyone around you as well as yourself. So he's like, don't be stupid. And at first I thought, oh, that's dumb. Like I'm I'm gonna, you know, I'm tough. I can deal with this. And then you realize, yeah, nope, never mind. I'm not. <laughs> I need some help. And um, that actually makes a ton of sense because if I'm cranky, it's I'm not gonna help anybody. So I'm just gonna alienate everyone and and alienate the ones that are closest to me first. And that's gonna suck long term anyway. So yeah, I don't. I try not to. Mm, yeah, it's so good. Well, uh, going back to climbing. Uh, I'm kind of curious on the spectrum of uh, lifelong committed climbers, you know, who really are able to dig into that sport. I feel like one end of the scale of commitment, you kind of have the dirt bag climbers who achieve a kind of um, benevolently de- detached nirvana and Joshua tree. And that's great. And then on the other hand, you have kind of the high achieving, you know, Dean Potter, Alex Honnold types who are able to, you know, push the boundaries and of the sport and, you know, they love that level of commitment. Where do you fit on that spectrum um, of a climber of what you love about the sport? You know, I think I'm kind of, um, 
I think I slide back and forth on that scale because I like to, I, there are a lot of times where I do like to just be doing my thing and not worrying about um, pushing a grade or pushing through a level or, or trying to be this adaptive climber that is, that is achieving these goals. Um, but then there's other times where I really do want to do that, um, where I want to try to climb a really hard route. And um, I just came off this summer where I had a really great, it was my most productive summer as far as um, hard red points. And I was like, that was really motivating to me. I wanted to go and try hard. And I wanted to, uh, my wife and I were kind of kind of feeding off each other. We climbed together all the time. So it was like us kind of pushing each other. And uh, so she's on, you know, coming off probably her best season as well, where you're just like, there's something really fun and gratifying about doing that. But there's also something really fun and gratifying about climbing easy routes in the backcountry um, and living in your van and not being bothered by anything. Um, I really do like both of those things. And I think the climbers who do this for a really long time, you'll, they'll kind of do the same thing. They'll slide back and forth, you know, they'll be a dirtbag for a long time, but then they'll also be this high achiever. Like, you know, Honold is really good at disappearing for months at a time because he just wants to be a dirtbag. And then he's also really good at coming into the limelight and saying, I'm going to go do this particular route and kind of get a bunch of attention and move himself forward. So I think if you can kind of do both, you can kind of do it longer term, I think. Would you say that there's different rewards or different kind of goals that you're getting out of that side of the spectrum? Like the taking off, getting off the grid for a couple of months has a different reward than potentially, you know, pushing yourself in competitions and things like that. Yeah. I think that like the, the two, and they're actually so like diametrically opposed to like the one is just like this soul satisfying kind of refilling, I think, um, for me where it's like, Oh, I like just being out with our friends camping in the dirt, doing our thing, climbing every day. And then when you're competing and doing really well, or you're on a route or you're you're trying to do a speed record or you're trying to do a hard, um, red point, um, that's really satisfying too, because you realize, Oh, I can actually push my body to this point and it will still respond. That's really neat to see where that threshold is. And those two things are not the same. Those, you know, when I'm pushing really hard on a route, I can only do that for a certain amount of time. Whereas living and climbing every day, I could pretty much do that for a, a long time. You know, you're not yes. like, Oh God, I need to stop. Um, you feel like, Oh, I could keep doing this. This is pretty easy to do. So I, they, they both fulfill different parts of me, I think. Hmm. I'm going to play the, the ignorance here and assume that some of our listeners also don't know you've used the term red point a couple of times. Red point is, um, me climbing a route. Um, I've fallen on, but climbing it cleanly without falling, um, hmm. from the bottom to the top. Um, and sometimes it takes me, you know, months to red point a climb. So sometimes I'll do them really quickly, but, um, red pointing is just this style of climbing where you are learning a climb by doing it over and over. And then you actually climb it one time without falling on it ever. And, you know, uh, just other clarification, what is climbing? (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's where you have the ball in the racket, right? Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. That's what I meant. Starting back to kind of the, uh, the committed life of, a climber, do you have a vision for you know what your what effect you're hoping uh, your life as a climber will have? Uh, you know the kind of value that is produced, you know, relationally and otherwise. Um, I really, my biggest thing I can think now, like as I've been doing it for so long, I hope that people look at it and go, okay, yeah, you know, he did he did these things that were you know that people thought were great or whatever, um, but also taking some of that and using it as a, 
kind of catalyst to help other people. Um, because I feel like if we're just doing it just to do it for ourselves, it kind of gets a little bit selfish. Um, and it, I mean, at some point you, you start to say, why am I just, why am I doing this? You know, is there, is there like a means to an end here? And so I hope that people look at it and go, you know, he took those things that he used that became a catalyst for him to then help other people. Um, and I feel like there's a good balance there. Like they look at it and they say, yeah, he still did his thing, but he also was, you know, at the same time doing these other things where he was helping and kind of giving back and, and kind of hopefully educating the public on what climbing can be. Um, you can be a dad, you can be a husband, you can be successful. You can still do all these things and be a climber. Um, I think people don't understand that always. I know that Cindy had to kind of choose when you were in the hospital, like, you know, do I fill out a do not resuscitate order? Like, what do I do if like he dies right now? Are there ways that that has it? Uh, that you could point to that that's affected uh, your relationship with her? I think that like more than anything, I look at it and I think, gosh, I, I don't know how she navigated all that. Like, I don't know. Cause I try to get my head around that. Like, how do you sit there and navigate those things? And like, how do you listen to a doctor saying to you, he's never going to do this or that. And I think of like, if I was sitting there, like, gosh, how do you navigate that. And I really don't have an answer because I just think she's able to process these things. She's, I think a lot of her, the things that has helped her, she's science, she's science-based. So my wife is a uh, wildlife biologist by trade, um, but she works in a pharmacy. um, And so she's very scientific in the way she approaches things. And I think that that probably is a better way to approach these things because she could look there and look at the information and kind of go through it systematically and say, okay, we have this, we have this, we have this, that's going to do this for him. Instead of a person like me, who's more emotional where I'm just like, oh my gosh, they just said she's hurt. Like my head would explode. And so she's able to just, I don't know how she does that, but she's really quite talented in that respect. And I think I've only gained um, respect for her because she is able to do that. I've watched her do it in so many different realms of our life where she's able to just kind of look at information and disseminate it and say, okay, this is kind of where this is going to get us. And I'm like, you know, oh, there's something shiny over there. I'm going to go there now. And so she's just much better at able to kind of latch on to stuff and kind of get through it. Love that. That's great. That seems great to be married with, actually. Yeah, totally. It sounds very helpful. It's a very, very good balance to have. I want to ask you a little bit about uh, your training. Um, you know, I've run into on your blog and a few other places, kind of the descriptions of the dedication of your training regimes and you're getting ready for uh, to really push it for a season. Uh, when you're shaping, you know, a season's um, training program, are there core things that keep you motivated? For me, I have to have, I need to have some kind of a goal. Um, like I tell people this all the time, like if you're training just to train, um, it gets really, really boring. It's really hard to stay motivated. So I will like specifically pick certain routes or competitions or whatever it is um, and say, that's where I'm going. And so then I back it out from there. So if that particular thing is going to happen in September, well, I know that I have to back up eight weeks from there and start this cycle of training that's going to get me to peak at that time. And then I'll sit there and, and I'll, I'll write a program. And I've worked with some really great guys. I worked with um, Brad Jackson, who is a really good um, kind of physical climber, and he's also a trainer. And so he helped me kind of build programs for climbing El Cap and climbing El Cap in a day and just kind of, you know, you need different skill sets for those things. You know, sometimes you have this skill set of endurance. Sometimes you have this skill set of power. Sometimes you need both. And so 
he was able to help me kind of take the information and say, okay, here's what you want to do. Here's how you do it. And so that's how then I back up now, even when I train it, okay, what do I really need to get this thing done? Um, if it's a long route, well, then I need some, some endurance. And so I'll build a program based on that. Um, and then figure out my diet and figure out what I need to kind of get me to peak at that time and then ride that peak for as long as I can. So it changes every objective. Um, and it changes just about every season. How much of that informs when you're, um, you know, working with adaptive athletes, do you bring any of that in when you're um, trying to help frame progression and achievement for them? You know, I I try to. It's really interesting when you work with adaptive athletes, like some of them are really um, receptive to that stuff, like to say to them, okay, so if you want to do good in nationals, you have to train five days a week. Some of them look at that and they go, awesome, I'm going to do that. Others look at that and go, that's stupid. I'm not doing that. And so you have to kind of be where they are. Um, I think I've learned that more as like, I, people ask me to help them train. You realize like some people are intrinsically motivated. Um, that's me where it, it, I'll get a goal in my head. I don't need anyone to tell me what to do. I'll just go do it. Um, and I think that's why I was successful with like my recovery too. Cause the doctor would say, well, Hey, if you want to walk, here's what you need to do. And I'm like, okay, I'll go do that. Whereas some people need to have somebody really pushing them. And so I've, I've learned to kind of figure out what those people need um, and try to listen to them and say, yeah, okay, you're going to need me to kind of bark at you every day and tell you what to do. Or some people I can just say, hey, if you want to climb El Cap in a day, here's what you need to do. And they'll go do it. And then they'll send me pictures. It's pretty amazing. Um, and it's weird. Like there doesn't seem to be much of a middle ground. It's like very few people are like, yeah, I'll do part of it, but not all of it. They are either yes, I will do it or no, I will not. And so kind of weird just navigating who's who. Totally. What do you, what have you found is helpful with an athlete who's having, who's simply in a rough spot uh, at a given time or feeling like they're not moving forward in the way that they want to, or maybe they'll never move forward in the way they want to? Yeah. For, and, and that happens, to, I think, to everyone. Um, I think we all hit these like big plateaus where you're just like, what am I doing? You know, I'm falling off stuff I used to warm up on and I'm going backwards. Um, for me, what I have to do is I have to step back a little bit and just say, okay, you know, what's either take a break. Um, cause that usually means I'm burned out. And I tell them that too. It means you're probably overtraining or you are just so micro focused right now. You're just getting, you're just hurting yourself. And so, you know, I'll have athletes like, well, I'm training, I'm training three days a week. But, you know, I have really bad tendonitis now and it's like, and they won't in their head, they just don't ever realize like they should just back off a little bit and change. They'll just kind of keep hammering. And I think climbers do that. Like even when they're injured, they're just like, well, you know, my arm's falling off, but I'm just going to keep training around it and see what happens. As an athlete, uh, especially a long-term athlete, you have to realize like, okay, it's this cycle and you have to be able to navigate that cycle and, and realize what's happening. And so when you hit those plateaus, why are you hitting those plateaus? You know, what are you eating? How much are you training? How much are you sleeping? Um, all those things pay into it. And I just say that to the athlete is like, Hey, maybe we just need to step back a little bit and take a little break here and maybe take a week off. Like you say, take a week off to climbers. And they're just like, what? Like shit, seven days in a row. Like that's insane. Right, and it's a non-category. Yeah. Like any other athlete in the world would be like, oh yeah, I'll take, you know, they take a week off. That's no big deal. Whereas climbers are just this weird machine where we're just like, nope, gotta go, gotta go five days a week. Gotta keep, you know, whatever happens, happens. So it's an interesting thing to navigate. I feel like that would 
almost only be intensified also by recovery from an injury. Do you find that that's the case where when an athlete is actually trying to work past something, that tendency becomes even more significant? For sure. A, a lot of times um, these athletes will come back and like, so they're, they're just getting back into like their prime, like they're, they're ready to train, they're ready to do something, but they'll, so they're going at it and they're, they want to charge really hard, but like the sockets that we wear rub your skin. And so like if I'm climbing five days a week, and I'm rubbing holes in my skin. Well, that means I'm not going to be able to keep climbing because I'm, now I'm going to get this sore. It's going to hurt. And just from doing it myself and realizing, okay, if I push through this, you don't actually push through it. You actually set yourself back. I'll say to them, look, let me just save you some headache. Let me just help you. Let me help you to, to be better and not make the same mistakes I've made. And so it's hard for them to kind of put the reins on. And it's hard if you're trying to help them and train them to say to them, look, actually to go forward, you kind of have to go backwards a little bit. Um, and for me, that's a super hard lesson and it's still a hard lesson, but to try to impart that to a, like a younger athlete, especially like, gosh, I meet these kids who are just like, you know, I'm going for it. And you, you want, you don't want to like stamp on their enthusiasm, but like you want to say, it's okay. You're going to be fine. This is a long game. You have to be able to do this for a long time. So just let's, let's focus on that game instead of the short game. Yeah, I love the the counterintuitive nature of that. That there's a learned kindness there, both in your story, your your choice for amputations. The other time you use that phrase, go backwards to go forwards. Exactly. And like it's it makes a ton of sense and feels like wait, but but I want to achieve. I want to drive forward. I want to go, go, go. Like that's full gas and that's never let up. And you're like, well, you actually don't get good mileage that way, and especially right. long term. And I tell people that all the time. I'm like, you know, if you look at my career, those things didn't all happen like in six months. That's a, those things are spread out over, you know, 10 years, you know, so like climbing on El Cap and competitions and all those things that I do, those are like, those are strategically spread out. It's not like just throwing myself at all this crap at once. It's like, if, cause if you try to do that, you, you're probably just going to limit what you can do. And so it's a lot easier to say, look, let's look at the long game instead of the next six months. Um, let's focus on everything instead of this little micro piece. What's uh what's on the horizon for you, Craig? We're gonna start ice climbing here pretty quick. Um, it's getting cold, um, which is awesome. So uh, ice climbing in the winter, and then going to Greece in March um, to climb at Kalimnos for a while, um, doing some sport climbing there. So start training for that in December, and then train for you know eight weeks leading up to Kalimnos, and ice climbing in in the middle of all that stuff too. So. Uh, fun stuff. Yeah, sounds killer. Yeah, man. Good luck. That sounds fantastic. Thank you. Thank where, you. where can uh, some of our listeners go to find out more about you? They can go to my website. It's just craigdemartino.com. And I kind of try to update, kind of map where I am and see what's going on. And that'll link them into my Facebook and my Instagram and all that fun stuff. Perfect. Right on. Well, thanks for spending some time with us today. Thanks, you guys. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the podcast, guys. You need to be sure to subscribe now and follow us on social media under Ann Sons Magazine. And of course, for articles and films, check out annsonsmagazine.com.